All right, welcome back, everyone. This is Perpetually Dissatisfied. I am your host, Adam, um, and I am here today with two amazing individuals from a different country. But before we get into the topic, I just want them to quickly introduce themselves. So let's start with Caitlin. Hi, I'm Caitlin. I'm originally from Chicago, and I have been living in Santiago de Chile in South America for the past five years now. And Carolina. Hi, I'm Carolina. Um, I'm originally from Chile, and then I moved to the Midwest in Wisconsin when I was young, and then moved back about a year ago. So... uh... You know, our topic today, guys, is going to be about uh, coronavirus in Chile, as well as how they are handling things from a governmental level, from like a personal responsibility level, um, and just, you know, going down the line of the things that, that frustrate us with, with what's going on in this pandemic. Um, so I, I kind of want to start off the podcast by giving some sort of like historical context um, or, you know what globally is currently going on there. So um, I'm going to open up the floor for, for either of you to, to respond to that. Um, so specifically here in Chile, we have a... Well, how do I explain? In 1973, we had a the first democratically elected socialist president, Salvador Allende, um, and he was overthrown by in a coup um, to be replaced by um, Pinochet, who was basically through 1973 on to 1990, um, held uh, basically a really strict dictatorship in Chile. Um, and in that time, people were murdered, disappeared, um, thousands and thousands of people. And so, from 1990 to about now, um, we've had a democracy. And from there, in October 19th, or sorry, well, October 18th of 2019, we had a little movement start. Kate, would you like to? A little movement. Oh, yeah. A little, a little movement. Just a little movement. As a treat. A little movement. <laughs> So um, basically on October 18th, we have what is known down here as Chile woke up in the sense that after 30 years of basically, you know, trying to adapt to this new almost illusion of democracy, of a return to normalcy, so to speak, the people finally got fed up. Um, And one of the main kind of causes you'll see probably in the news about this is that it happened after a 30 peso increase in the subway fare. Now, 30 pesos might not seem like much. That's basically the equivalent of like, I don't know, like 10 cents, I think, something like yeah. that. Um, but one of the really um, common refrains of here is it's not 30 pesos, it's 30 years. And that refers to the 30 years since the return to democracy because during that time when um, Pinochet was in power, the new constitution was put into place. And alongside of that, in tandem, you had a group of economists from Chile study at University of Chicago, and they became known as the Chicago Boys. And they were really the first ones to kind of implement the new liberal ideal proposed by Milton Friedman in another country apart from the States. And that's kind of why Chile has been seen as almost like the miracle 
you know, Chile went from being one of the poorest countries in the world to being one of the most economically prosperous, especially in Latin America. I mean, I think, Adam, you'll even remember, you know, when I went down to Chile um, for study abroad five mm-hmm. years ago, everyone kept saying, oh, yeah, of course, it's the safest and most stable country in Latin America. Yeah. But that's not actually the reality, is that, yes, it's the illusion of stability, but it's not the reality for all. There's a lot mm-hmm. of classism. Um, you have, you know, basic what I think should be rights um, are listed as private privileges in this constitution. For example, water. Chile is the only country to have water be privatized, for mm-hmm. example. Only country. Not a lot of people know. Yeah. No one knows that, I feel. And then, like, you know, the, the health system, you know, health care is not a right. It's, you know, similar to what is happening back in the States. And so it was just basically all of this building resentment, anger, inequality, feeling like you couldn't get anything done because of how bureaucratic this system was, thanks to this constitution that was written that is still in place, you know, Mm -hmm. 30 years later. And so on October 18th, after a week or so of student-led fair dodging, everything Mm -hmm. kind of came to a head. The government shut down the metro, which then led to folks being forced to walk home. I walked home, I think, two hours from Mm -hmm. my um, foreign place of employment to get back to where I live. Um, Carolina and I both live very close to kind of what you know we call the Zona Cero or like Ground Zero. Ground Zero. Ground Zero, yeah. It's um, formerly known as Plaza Italia. Um, this is kind of where people would, will go to celebrate, you know, sporting events, um, um, New Year's, um, things where, you know, Chile is either doing something really, really well or when Chile is not doing great. Most of the marches that, you know, historically have taken place here start in Plaza Italia. Mm-hmm. Um, and so basically that it kind of became an absolute explosion that day. I mean, mm-hmm. there was a lot of protesting. There was destruction. You know, you ha- I had a bus set on fire just down the street from where I live. Mm-hmm. And as of that night, then the government here declared state of emergency and a mandatory curfew. Um, and so for a week we were under curfew. You couldn't leave your house after a certain time. Um, our neighborhood, because we are so close to the, to the plaza, you know, was really just like a cloud of tear gas. There was mm-hmm. a lot of police repression, a lot of, um, you know, hey, intimidation. Go for it. I add that um, during Toque de Guerra, which means curfew in Spanish, um, during Toque de Guerra, we would be out on, this was about five nights of this curfew. And yeah. during that time, people during the day would be out on the streets protesting heavily, um, and obviously with a lot of police um, violence on, our, on their end, shot back at us via tear gas, um, water cannons, rubber bullets. bullets pellets um and so during that time we were out in the streets i was with a lot of friends because they would stay at my place because the government would literally mandate a curfew about an hour before people had to be home <laughs> it was never set every night this week it's going to be at 10 o'clock and it's going to end at this time we didn't know how long this curfew was going to end mm-hmm. we didn't know the duration of this curfew in, in terms of days um, a lot of uncertainty and so a lot of people would have to walk back to their homes, stay with somebody else, a lot of people were stranded um, because after um, the hour that curfew is put in place, the military is basically on the streets 
supervising and surveilling, right? Mm -hmm. And so in that time, um, if you're caught on the streets, you could, as we've been here, to think that it happened, you could have gotten um, arrested, assaulted, kidnapped, um, heavily fined. And so during that time, a lot of people were very, very um, resistant to this curfew because Mm -hmm. it felt really unjust that because this social movement was starting to sort of, for lack of a better term, explode in Santiago and then all throughout Chile, um, mm-hmm. that people were mad that the government was just saying, okay, now you have to go home. You have to be quiet now. You don't right. get to you don't get to practice this form of protest anymore for, mm-hmm. for the night. Um, and the, the context of that too, I think, if I can just jump in here, is also yeah. really kind of terrifying when you think about the history that Chile has in terms of the military being used against its own people. I mean, of course, you have the very glaring example of during the Pinochet years, but you also have times before that as well. You have, for example, in 1907, you have the Santa Maria massacre um, in mm-hmm. which workers are literally just executed mm-hmm. you, know, you know, when they're trying to rise up against unfair labor conditions. And then you have, of course, as I, we've already talked about a little bit, during the dictatorship, people are disappeared, people are shot in the street. You know, there's a lot of fear. It's very much every person for themselves because you don't know who you can trust. Right. So to implement something like that with what I would say is not true, without truly kind of taking it into the, you know, the, like, you know, the means are not just by the ends, I feel here. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you don't necessarily need to put a curfew for protests. I think it was completely unjustified, the response. You know, what does that do to your people? You know, when you have a people that it's very, still very fresh in everyone's minds, what happened? in 1973 mm-hmm. and from there until 19, 1990 that's a lot of trauma you're yeah. causing that's a lot of psychological uh implications that you have that's been generations of people growing up in a dictatorship that have that base of their childhood in that context and so for a lot of people to have i mean in october i had friends over at that time and so um people people in a group were like you think there's going to be a curfew? I don't know. There might be a curfew, and somebody was like, "I don't think there's going to be a curfew." No, don't be silly. Like they're not going to do that. That's extreme mm-hmm. because there is such historical implications that, ha- like, heavy that um, have to do with the government threatening a curfew on people in Chile. Would you there's say? Sorry. Things. Yeah. Would you say that's happening currently? Like. <clears throat> You know, granted, every a lot of places are on lockdown. So, with the pandemic currently occurring, would you say you're seeing similar things of like, you know, police force in the streets, people getting arrested, people being forced in? Like, yeah. would you say you're seeing that now? Are you talking about Chile specifically? Yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, because we had, um, I mean, now we're on full lockdown, full quarantine in certain regions of, of Santiago. But the other night, um, I forget which night exactly, because all the days are the same place. Um, <laughs> what year is it? Yeah, for real. Well, I don't, what year? Who am I? Um, <laughs> we recently had another curfew in, like, put in place a few nights ago. And so with that, it starts at 10 p.m. and it ends at 5 a.m., which we all know is the window of That's time, what I was which is where it's at its strongest, yeah. right? So from 10 p.m. to 5 a.m., um, 
no one was allowed on the street. So we already know what curfew is. We've, we've gone through that before. This generation has gone Same old, same old. Um, but in that case, why does the government feel they need to implement a curfew instead of implementing, you know, full quarantine or a lockdown or some sort, some form of assistance for people um, like so many other countries are doing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why is the curfew the first thing that they implement nationwide? Um, what are their intentions with that? It's their fail-safe in a way, you know, that's kind of what they know best. That's what they fall back on. I mean, you know, the curfew that took place in October only lasted for um, a week. And then from there, there was still constant protests. I mean, it was still a very, very constant thing that was happening, but it wasn't um, as extreme as it was that first week. Mm-hmm. But with March, one of the things that both Kevin and I had talked about before we realized the gravity of the virus and the, of, of this pandemic, was that we thought, oh no, the government might try to use coronavirus to their advantage in order to squelch the protests that are still going on because April 26th was supposed to be the date in which um, the Chilean people voted in a plebiscite mm. to potentially ratify a new constitution. So replacing mm. that constitution that was back um, since the Pinochet years. Mm. But, so our concern was, aha, this is going to be quite convenient, you know. Suddenly, right. magically, the first week of March, you know, the coronavirus is going to show up in Chile. It's like, uh-huh, okay, everyone, you know, in your houses, you can't come out, you can't have any protests. Mm-hmm. Because, um, Adam, to give you some context of what kind of happens in, especially Santiago, in March, March is basically when everyone comes back from vacations in February. So students, workers, everyone kind of goes back to quote-unquote normal. Mm-hmm. So even in a year where there's not a revolution happening, mm-hmm. um, March is always crazy. You know, people, the streets are nuts. There's tons of traffic. Um, There's a lot of congestion. But so it was going to be even more so this year because the plan was, you know, to to kind of remind folks, hey, we're not going back to normal. This Mm -hmm. is not normal. The plan was to have it be a very socially active month in the sense that there was going to be, you know, calls for protests at least once a week. Um, Yeah. We certainly thought that too. I saw that a lot in March, and we prepared ourselves for that. We did. Specifically. Um, I bought a gas mask. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we all have our, our armor, right? Um, <coughs> yeah. Um, and so we prepared for that specifically. We did not prepare for this virus specifically because mm-hmm. nobody, nobody did. Um, no. No. I think also we we thought in a way I think you know Chile is notorious for how isolated it is. I mean you have these natural borders. You know you have the desert to the north, the Andes Mountains to the east, Patagonia, Antarctica to the south, and then the Pacific Ocean to the west. Kind of like well, how, you know, how come on? How is this virus to make its way down here if it's only really taking place in um, in Europe? You know especially that's kind of where the focus is right now. Mm-hmm. But and this is where it gets interesting is that this virus is really has a very kind of classist background in the Mm -hmm. sense that it was brought to Chile by people from the upper class. Um, And the thing about Chile is that it's a very, very classist country. Mm -hmm. You kind of probably can understand that from the context we've already given about um, neoliberalism, um, the inequality that's caused all of the, you know, that's caused all of the, um, the social unrest, mm-hmm. but it's staggering. And, you know, the other implication of this curfew is also that it basically, in a way, is 
punishing all of us for the incompetence of a few. And what do I mean by that? I mean that the people who primarily have been the, contain- the people who have brought this virus to Chile are folks in the upper class. Mm-hmm. And because historically the folks in the upper class really don't have to answer to anybody, they're not following the rules. You know, they're going to do quote unquote quarantine in their summer homes in you know little towns on the coast. Well, there's no way there's, they're prepared for something like this. Right. Or, you know, you have people doing coronavirus parties or not reporting yeah. when they are having symptoms or going to, buy, you know, the grocery store even when if they are reporting symptoms. And so it's almost like, you know, how in kindergarten we all lose our recess privileges when a few knuckleheads don't pay attention to the rules. It screws right. all over. And that's basically what's happening here because the current government, which as Carolina said, is pretty much an oligarchy, you mm-hmm. know, has their main focus of support being from these upper class circles because they are upper class circles. People in power are literally all products of that class. And so you can't punish just them. If you punish just them, you lose their support. So they mm-hmm. have to punish everybody. Right. Um, to put it even more into context, our president, um, Sebastián Piñera is comes from a family of billionaires, mm-hmm. so he himself is of that class. Um, he studied at Harvard. Yes. Um, what I was going to say, Kate, actually, to sort of challenge the notion, um, or, or go more into the idea that wealthy people are bringing on this virus, that this mm-hmm. is happening all over the world. That in Brazil, yes. I read an article that. Um, a wealthy woman came back from vacation in Europe, brought the illness with her, infected her um, her worker, her housemate, um, and her housemate got sick and died. Mm. While this woman, who had like prime access to the best healthcare in Brazil, survived. And so this is happening kind of all over the world. Um, I had a friend the other day mention like, this is also happening in the United States. A lot of people of color, a lot of people who have been marginalized still have to go into work. You know, they can't just work from home. They don't have the best access to healthcare or let alone any healthcare. Or private transportation for that matter. Private look, at, look at the impact of public transportation on all of this. Yeah. So all these, all these symbols or markers of wealth or class are even are being shown a lot more right now because we're seeing who can't work from home, who can't take private transportation, who has access to, you know, stockpiling even, who has access to these exactly. emergency emergency um, needs, um, and so it's happening kind of all over the world. Specifically in Chile, I think that we are the the gaps between wealth. Um, are just very obvious here. Really stark, um, yeah. Very stark. And Santiago specifically is very segregated. And it's so, like Chicago in yeah. that sense, Adam. I mean, yeah. you, can see the, you can see the economic disparity just by taking the metro here. Like, it's like when you take the L back home, you know? It's it very is. much that. Oh, it shows in the infrastructure. It shows in the infrastructure of the city, in the metros, in the, in the buses, the inequality of those services mm-hmm. um it shows in the access to food to water in certain neighborhoods um and so this is something i think class has always been a major major subject in chile and a major cause for for protest um that the entire movement in october that it's still happening 
um, has always been about class. Has always been about who who is benefiting from from the system. Like who is actually yeah who's able to survive. Right. Like who actually has that stability <clears throat> being projected to the world? Yeah. Right. And it makes me think about like here in the U.S. Right. Like I think things are a little bit different than say like Italy. Right. Like Italy. Mm. The healthcare system there, since everybody's living so close quarters in Italy, since everything is so expensive, you know, healthcare systems essentially are, are picking and choosing who can live and who can die, um, mm-hmm. which is why we saw such an uptick in their numbers. But like here in the U.S., we have somewhat of a similar issue. <clears throat> you know, if you are showing some of the signs, but not all of them, then <clears throat> you won't be admitted or something like that and like that's for me that's crazy we don't have enough tests you know like people are like healthcare workers are running out of supplies like my sister she works at an urgent care and they just started doing covid testing um and you know like she said a guy came in the other day and like he was like pretty young and he was like really sick and they were trying to figure out what happened and they checked his lungs and they heard crackling and they did like um an x-ray and he ended up um having so much liquid in his lungs, he had coronavirus, he, he had so much liquid in his lungs that he had two days left before he would have died if he didn't go to oh a, a hospital. And so oh it, it's, it's really tough because, you know, the cases here, while, you know, small in nature, um, you know, are, are big in, in places that don't necessarily have that kind of health care support. So what would you say... It, like it looks like in Chile like how are people dealing with it how are you guys dealing with it like mm-hmm. what are you noticing that's like you're like this is starkly crazy like I don't I can't believe I'm seeing this well let me quickly ask you something because I'm actually am not aware of the status of this back home but are the tests for coronavirus free um <clears throat> that's a great question I don't think so I mean they claim that like yes our government has claimed as such but insurance companies still will be collecting their money. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. in New York, somebody who was discharged, it was about 34 grand for their hospital visit because of the oh, ventilators yeah. and like all the support that was given to them. And, you know, like it like, again, the reason why a lot of these people are moving around with it is because, you know, the signs differ. Right. Like right. It, it ranges. Right. And so it, it's it's crazy to, to say the least, but, but yeah, it's, I'm sure like while it is quote unquote free in the eyes of some, I, I think it's a classist kind of thing too. Right. It's like, well, who has the money for this and who doesn't? Well, that's definitely the one point we can definitely mm-hmm. say at first is that literally this test is not free. Well, I think Chile is the only country in Latin America to not offer a free test for this. I believe the, the cutoff, like the maximum price it can be is 25,000 pesos, which is roughly, wait, which is the peso right now? It's like 30, it's like $30 or something like that? Yeah. No. No, it's, it's like, like 40. 40, with the devaluation of the peso down here, God, God, God knows at this point. <laughs> but that's the point, is that it's expensive. Like, yeah. yeah. Like a lot of people do not have that kind of money as is, when you also have the, the fact that um, the uh, kind of the I don't know how do you say this in English the dirección de trabajo like the um, basically like the like the kind of almost like labor department mm-hmm. here mm-hmm. has made it legal for companies to not pay you during all of this and has also made it legal that you can just be fired and not be compensated as you deserve so 
people are not going to have the income as especially now to pay mm-hmm. for a test like this mm-hmm. so that's definitely for me the biggest kind of what the actual hell am i seeing yeah that it's somehow and what bizarre world is where you can it's literally the government is in a way saying okay giving carte blanche to companies to basically treat their workers like shit mm-hmm. it's it's very similar here i would say i mean like Maybe our, our, you know, our labor unions aren't necessarily, you know, advocating for no pay, but there is definitely like across the board, like, you know, as a teacher, I have to like check in with parents and stuff. And so, you know, a lot of them have lost their jobs and a lot of them are, you know, are are feeling that kind of pressure cooker situation of like, what am I going to do? And, and it's, it's all in due time, right? Rent is right around the corner here. So mm-hmm. um, I, I think it's, it's definitely, it's very true in what you're saying, right? Like, depending on the money that you do or don't have, you know, it is very indicative of like the treatment that you receive. And, you know, the first incident here, the first death, I mean, um, was a woman of color who like lived yeah. on the South side, didn't like clearly had pre-existing health conditions, but, you know, was lost too, too early in her life. And so um, it, it just makes you wonder, like we, it, well, it opens up a door for a conversation between like what we've just noticed um, in terms of like we have poor health, a poor healthcare system. Period. Mm-hmm. We have no childcare system that's effective, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, ultimately, like the privatization of like the healthcare industry is, is problematic too. Like we wouldn't be having these issues with like say masks or medical supplies if it had not been for supply and demand. Simple as that. Like mm-hmm. projections from last year determine the projections of what you make this year. Um, right. and, and so I think that that's been a whole, whole other monster of an issue that, that impacts like people in the healthcare field. And, and now in America, like China's not donating anything to us anymore for supplies, even though we gave them stuff. Um, and India just said, like, just pulled it off and said, no, like we need our, we need these supplies for ourselves. So like mm-hmm. what we're seeing is this like global, you know, issue of people are hoarding their own supplies now. And also things like, you know, price gouging too. I mean, for example, that's one thing that's really kind of disturbing down here is that um, there, it's actually unconstitutional mm-hmm. to freeze prices. So again, you see the connection to what folks have been fighting for. And I think that's something that I think that we, the Chile and the States have in common. More so than the fact that Chile is basically like, you know, the pet project of the state's neoliberalism is that, um, you know, the cracks in the system are showing. And both countries, I think, you look at the movement with Bernie Sanders, Medicare for All. Mm-hmm. You look at the movement here, you know, the 18th of October uprising here, mm-hmm. the, the charge to have a new constitution. I think this virus is really kind of showing, hey, you know what? The kids are all right. Like, this is this is genuinely something that we need to talk about. Mm-hmm. And I think it's almost like if you're not woken up by now, you, will, you definitely need to, need to be at this point. Yeah. One thing that I've been noticing a lot um, in the beginning was the amount of price gouging happening in pharmacies um, and how all these private corporations can raise their prices on essentials during a crisis, which Mm -hmm. is what price gouging is, obviously. Um, And so something as basic as hand sanitizer, I noticed a week ago, no, two weeks ago, I was shopping for stuff um, in preparation and there was a lot of hand sanitizer out and it was 1,000 pesos for a little bottle. it's like and two now, I think, right? And now I've been seeing images of the same hand sanitizer for six thousand, just like ten bucks, which is astronomical. Like this is 
this is absolutely unacceptable that corporations are allowed to raise their prices for essentials mm-hmm. for for their own profit because they know that people will buy them anyway because people are in this mode of you know the scarcity mindset mm-hmm. that they need these items now otherwise they're not going to be here later so i might as well buy this now and it's six thousand bickles all right um, and they're well, constitutionally protected which is just the most mind-boggling thing like yeah. there's literally nothing we can do to stop it in that sense. And I mean, I would say that's a, it's very similar to here in the states. While like there are price caps on certain things, like mm-hmm. it makes me reflect. Like I think this was like a year or so ago. There's like a a hurricane in Florida, right? And mm-hmm. they were price price gouging everything. And like mm-hmm. who like in a, in a time where there's like a natural disaster or a pandemic, right? Like I it's interesting because like while it's in theory and practice, like, yes, let me go call the Better Business Bureau or something like that. Like, they're not going to do anything. <laughs> um, and, and, we're, yeah, and we're seeing it like, like Amazon, for instance, right? Like, they've been doing a pretty okay job of, like, mm-hmm. knocking down the people that, like, bought out this stuff in mass to just then yeah. sell it on the internet for more. Evil. Yeah. And so, Evil. yeah, eBay is doing the same thing. Like, it's just crazy. Like, here, you can't find, like, even two weeks ago, you can't, you couldn't even find hand sanitizer, cleaning supplies. Like, I had to make my own. <laughs> like, yeah. so, like, and, and I'm just you like, DIY our, our protections against virus. Right. Honestly. It's just, it, it's just mind boggling how, you know, we, there's a narrative that, like, there's always more and there's always, like, it'll be in stock, but, like, we haven't had, like, aside from maybe toilet paper, I don't think I've seen, like, Lysol, like, cleaning products, um, or even hand sanitizer on the shelves for, like, over a month now, because people have yanked it. <laughs> right. And also, again, as we said before, a classist thing, too, you know, mm-hmm. who has the access to do that? It's generally, generally the people who are upper, upper middle class or upper class. Mm-hmm. My brother was talking about this the other day. He's an economist, and he was talking about how right now um, people, I, we understand that mindset of, of like maybe anticipating that this won't exist in the future and so we need to get it right now. We've all been conditioned with that mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was saying that Chile relies a lot on importing goods. Yes. Now, with our production here is not really or basic items. Like, right. we don't make our own flour or our own grains. Like, those things are imported from other countries. Coffee, all those types of things. And Thank so, you. right, and so a lot of those products are going to cease to come to Chile because, well, I mean, this is speculation. I'm not sure if this is actually happening, but... He was saying he anticipates that eventually if this keeps going on the route that it is, that production is going to sort of freeze mm-hmm. and we're not going to keep importing these goods. And so what happens then when people don't have access to rice, flour, basic necessities, um, which I hope doesn't go to that point, but... Yeah, from your lips to God's ears. Yeah. It's not necessarily absurd to, to sort of think about that possibility no it's it's definitely reality and i think that um i don't know i mean i had something i was gonna go on that and i literally just left so <laughs> back to you yeah <laughs> so well, no 
knowing all of this, what would you say, like, you're doing, like, how, well, first, how are you, do like, dealing with this going on in your country, <laughs> as well as, like, what precautions have you taken place or that you've noticed <clears throat> that other people have been taking uh, to ensure that, like, they survive uh, rather than, you know, thrive in, in a space? How are we doing? Hmm. Um, you know, we have to speak about ourselves now. Oh, oh, like, we don't talk about ourselves. That's when it becomes real. No. Um, I mean, you know, as we said, you know, we've been under kind of the same thing that's happened in Chicago, you know, shelter in place order um, since 10 p.m. on Thursday evening. Um, but even before that, folks were kind of taking the measures to say that. Well, I've been in my house since last week, Saturday. Um, You're just a homebody, though, anyway. So. Yeah, I would stay at home anyway. Yeah, <laughs> I have to work, but I don't have to work right now. Um, and so a lot of people, I've been seeing a general theme, which is great, that a lot of people are staying home. It's encouraged. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's expected that you aren't on the streets. And now that we have a full lockdown in Santiago, it's mandated. Right? Yeah, you can't do anything. We can't do anything. Which is, has interesting implications, um, which I wanted to go back to about curfew and about mm -hmm. this concept of being forced to stay home. Yeah. Deja vu. <laughs> um, because I'm happily, I'm happy to stay home for as long as I need to in order for, you know, to contribute to the greater good of this, of this effort. Um, I have a lot of friends back at home who are frustrated with people they know who are not following guidelines or not following these these rules that mm -hmm. we put in place. Um, I've been seeing a lot of things on social media about people who are like, the government can't tell me what to do. I live, I'm a, I'm a free person. I'm a U.S. citizen. I can do whatever I want. <laughs> and then thinking about that individualist mindset of, of this thing that people have been sort of, you know, fed their entire lives, this notion that I'm an American, I can do what I want. I believe in freedom. I believe in, you know, my my own autonomy. Um, and then using that as a scapegoat to say, I'm not going to stay home, I can do whatever I want. I can have people over for a party. You can't tell me what to do, mm -hmm. which is um, gross. Me. Yeah. Um, but here in Chile, I don't see that very often. I don't see a lot of people saying that, besides what Kate was referencing before about this like population of people who have a lot of money here in Chile. Which, let's face it, it's very heavily influenced by the states in that sense, that individualistic psychology of the states. That's really where you kind of see it at play, isn't that? Yeah. Cool? Because we always see Chile as sort of a, a reflection or a project of the United States the free market economy, um, a lot of cultural things sort of brought to Chile from right. the United States that influence a lot of people to think that they don't need to they don't need to listen to these guidelines that whatever. But um, for the most part I haven't seen a lot of people here resist this idea that they have to stay home. And I think it's interesting when we talk about um, something on a similar level of curfews and mandated curfews. Um, and this idea that we've, we've been in the position to have to stay home before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
this isn't a new concept for us. This is something that we've had to do before for our own safety, um, whether we liked it or not. And now that we are in a similar boat as people from the United States, it's interesting to see that sort of contrast between people who've, who've felt the hands of their government before in a very mm-hmm. tactical way and people who right now are seeing the effects of their government on a personal level. Right. Yeah. Um, psychologically speaking, and too, for sure. Psychologically speaking, and a lot of people are really afraid to be in the States right now. Yeah. Um, which I think is interesting because people have been afraid to live in the States since it was colonized. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about different populations of people who felt the hands of the government in different ways. And now I think that generally speaking amongst white, privileged, um, you know, kind of good to go people in the States, they are now feeling the effects of the government telling them what to do. Mm-hmm. Right. That's so how they're woke to it. They're woke to it. And that's a reality that people here in Chile have faced for decades. Okay. That's the reality that people of color in the United States have faced for mm-hmm. decades, for centuries. Mm-hmm. Native people uh, in the States as well, native people in Chile, you know, indigenous populations have felt this. Exactly. As well. So it's interesting to see that shift sort of happen and people now sort of becoming a little bit more radicalized to the idea of, mm-hmm. for example, advocating for communities and this collective effort, um, okay. rights, you know, workers' rights. Um, and people really sort of having to protect one another. Right. I so have the paradigm shift is huge. How goes the paradigm? Because I've never seen that type of energy yeah. in the States before from people never. who, frankly, are have always been privileged enough to be isolated or insulated mm-hmm. from that type of from that type of regime. So. Yeah. And that's the thing I kind of thought of as well, at least from like a psychology perspective, is that, you know, um, I think a lot of my friends back when Chile woke up this past October were kind of looking down at what was happening, like, oh, my God, you know, there before the grace of God go I. But it was, again, it was kind of once like, oh, another country having a revolution. Okay, you know, back to eight o'clock news. Um, mm-hmm. But then when this all started really happening up in the States, I remember even talking to you, Carolina, and being like, oh my god i've got to check it out my friends back home like the psychological yeah like the the psychological like uh you know impact this is gonna have like you know not knowing this is gonna end you know i'm because i think back to how i felt you know being a statesian here at the heart of the action when all of the started you know being like it just you know you feel like you're out of your own body in a way like is this actually happening you know there is a, a sense of trauma that does kind of come along with these sorts of things. And it's okay to feel that trauma. It's okay to grieve for the loss of normalcy. I think it's a question of what aspects of normalcy are you running back to? And I think that's where I think the growth can really happen. I think that's the growth that's happening in the States is what aspects of normalcy should not be considered normal? What aspects of normalcy um, or what aspects of, you know, intera- of human interaction should be Yeah. Um, highlight so for example i know for me at least here when all this is going on i kept saying to my friends all i want to do is go for a walk in the park at any time of day 
and go for, you know, maybe a nice meal or share a drink with some friends, you know, on a, like a, um, what they call here, like, you know, the terraces, like out, like in the front of like a restaurant, almost like a French style cafe in that sort of sense and not have to worry about having to run for my life because the, you know, paddy wagons and water cannons and riot vans are going to come careening down the street, hurling tear gas, mm-hmm. you know, it's those basic things you miss a hug. A, a home-cooked meal, you know, not having to worry about, am I going to be able to get any of the grocery store? Will I even have a grocery store open? You know, and that, that's the things I think that a lot of my friends and loved ones are really going through in the States right now. And in a way, I'm kind of glad that I've been, I was here in October to go through all this because now I know how to give support mm-hmm. to my loved ones yeah. back home. We're going, for many of them, as you said, Carolina, are going through this for the very first time ever in their lives. So and yeah, right. definitely difficult. But in a sick sort of way, I'm kind of glad that they're going through because, as you said, it's opened people's eyes and it's allowing for a more collectivist approach to things, which I think is genuinely what we need right now. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that a lot of people in the States, and I don't mean to sound rude, but a lot of very white privileged people mm-hmm. are kind of shielded from this idea that the, the government can't touch them. Yeah. That's they happen to other people. They don't happen to me. I'm not a product of this system as much as somebody else, right? People think about that subconsciously without having to say it, but it it, it shows in white privilege and people being conditioned in that way, even if you've unlearned those things about about your identity yeah. and where you are placed in society. However, that this is happening so much to the general public that this is the first time that I can remember that Globally, we are all connected through something that we cannot defeat, that we cannot keep listening to politicians saying that we're at war with this virus. Yeah. Or celebrities singing that. Imagine. Or celebrities singing Imagine off tune. Um, <laughs> that we cannot defeat this virus with arms, with, with protecting corporations, that that's not how we're going to, no one's going to win in this situation. Yeah. It's not, a, it's not a us against them. This is a community effort. This is a collective mm-hmm. effort. Um, but I think, yeah, specifically with Chile, with us here, that we've already seen, um, and that, you know, I have all my relatives, my parents, like, they've gone through horrible dictatorships and regimes. Mm-hmm. And all that generational trauma that I feel, that my siblings feel, that all my friends here feel from from their families as well, mm-hmm. um, that that's something that we've been we've grown up with and we've been you know not used to but just accustomed to. Right. That idea that <laughs> the government is not here to protect us. We need to fend for ourselves and our communities and take care of each other. And it's that a collective really consciousness in a way. That really shows through the, the cultural ambiance here as well, um, and yeah. the, the contrast between, you know, growing up in the states where that I didn't see that necessarily as much as I do here. Even just like mm-hmm. moving back, living here, almost a, like after a year as an adult, um, and so I'm now seeing that a lot of people in the states are. Waking up to this idea that the system is not serving them. Yeah. Right. That the system was never meant to serve us. Um, 
And so it's very interesting because for me, it's like, oh yeah, we have a curfew. That's not happening in the States yet, but a curfew has happened in the States before. Right. The people of color in New Orleans and Ferguson, military has been on the streets before in the United States mm-hmm. recently, <clears throat> in the last several, couple of years. Yeah. Um, Ferguson is a great example of people protesting and mobilizing themselves and then feeling harsh government backlash. Same as the code access pipeline as well. I mean, that's, yeah. that's still literally going on as we speak. I mean, I just saw that, like, you know, the courts made a ruling in favor mm-hmm. um, of the First Nations there who are fighting for their land. Yeah. And so not to compare these different, these different subjects, they all are, you know, they all have nuance and they're all important on their own. Absolutely. Um, but it's just, it's very interesting, and I'll leave it at that, to see a lot of my well-to-do friends in the States feeling this pressure, which is valid, but feeling this pressure that a lot of us have already dealt with so many times before. Yeah. I wonder in the future how people's mindsets are going to shift. If people do become a little bit more radical in their politics, if people do become a little bit more outspoken and informed, I could see that going that way. Yeah. Yeah, I could too. like Like I was saying, you know, what aspects of normalcy do we not want to maintain once this is all said and done? What will become the new normal? You know, what are the things that we do want to maintain and, and um, oh, like have the word in Spanish, but I'm having English. Ah, um, like, what's the word? Ah, uh, fortalizar. Um, oof. This, this is what happens, Adam, when you go here for this long. You just <laughs> literally start speaking to language. <laughs> like, we, we're all so lucky that all, all of our friends here, for the most part, are bilingual. So you can just get away with peppering in. You know, <laughs> peppering in words. No, it, it's totally fine. I mean, I get it. <clears throat> you know, I, I'm also bilingual. So I'm just like, yes. you know, my, my day-to-day is, is very different depending on, on where I'm at. But... <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I am curious, though, because I, I mean, I don't <clears throat> I don't know Carolina's, uh, you know, life completely. But like, how are y'all's parents dealing like everything that you've mentioned, right, is very intense. Um, and not that I'm like, oh, you should be scared. But like, <laughs> you know, this this notion or this idea of like, you know, it, it isn't very normal to see some of the things that you guys have seen. Like you basically saw the similarity of like tenement. Tiananmen Square. So, you know what I mean? Like, so I, 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 I'm curious, like, how are your parents reacting to this? And like, I mean, I know, you know, Caitlin, you're, you're not home. So like, you know, the, the level of fear and anxiety, you know, is probably um, somewhat high, right? Like, you know, feeling a certain way. So like, how are y'all dealing with that? Like, how are you thinking about your family, your friends that are not around? Like, what, what would you say to that? Someone insert like the background of like the, the house sounds fine, the little dog drinking a cup of coffee. It's fine. Yeah. Everything's fine. It's um, fine. Yeah, you know, that's normal. You know, who need, you know, pandemia, the side of revolution. It's great. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, you know, in my case, um, Adam, I, I think you remember probably some things I've, I've studied about my parents, you know, like they're fairly conservative. Um, I am the oldest child of the test pancakes. You know, of course, they're going to be a little bit more like, are you okay mm-hmm. with me? Um, when all this blew up, of course, in October, they kind of were like, uh, what the hell's going on down there? 
there. Yeah. But they've actually, in a way, become kind of radicalized by it. Like, my dad, for example, who is like a huge Trump supporter, very big conservative, is straight up being like, yeah, the cops are like not actually protecting anybody. They're just, you know, pulling some nonsense on the same with like the troops who like are actually, you know, helping in the fabrication of, um, oh God, that was so Spanish to English, sorry. And, and the production of um, fabrication. Jesus. In the production of like basic medical supplies. They're just literally posted up on the corner with their arms, you know, mm-hmm. you know, fully armed and whatnot. Um, so I think for the, you know, the pandemia was in the context of the social uprising. My parents are actually relatively calm about all of it. They're kind of just like, okay, take care of yourself. You know, for their big fear, I think is like, because they know that I have had a run in with the military down here mm-hmm. um, during the, you know, social uprising, um, I was shot at, even though I wasn't doing anything wrong. It was not in curfew hours. I was just trying to get home from work. Mm-hmm. But that's the story of another day. I mean, they know that like I'm definitely on edge around them. So of course, knowing that the military is roaming the streets, my parents are going to be like, hey, text when you get home from the store, you know, make sure you have everything you know, under lock and key. Mm-hmm. I think I'm the one who's more worried about them though, because my parents are senior citizens, which is really weird to say out loud. But, you know, my dad is 65. My mom is in her early 60s. Um, My mom is immunocompromised. Mm -hmm. She has a really severe autoimmune disorder that has constantly been a source of kind of befuddlement for medical professionals. They really just don't know what to do for her. And so for me, my concern is, oh, my God, you know, if she ends up catching this, she's toast. Same with, with my dad, you know. He always jokes he has the McNamara Constitution, you know, Irish Italian resistance. And it's like, well, yeah, yeah. like still, you know, you're 65, like you have to take care of yourself. So mm-hmm. I think for me, it's more like my mom for sure knows that she cannot go out of the house right now. And my dad does too. But it's still, it's like, I wish I could be there to just be mm-hmm. like, are you guys okay? You know, mm-hmm. my friends are very th- happy to say like, you know, it seems like the majority of them are taking this seriously, are in good health. Um, and I hope that that continues, of course. Um, of course, it breaks my heart. You know, my friends who are musicians, educators, um, gate workers, you know, they're really hurting financially. And I know that's taking a big toll on mental health, I think, for everybody. So I know mental health speaking, I'm, of course, very concerned for my friends, you know, who are dealing with things like anxiety or depression because of this or just in general exacerbated by this. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the hardest part about being so far away. But as I said earlier, I'm really grateful in the sense that I have had this experience, you know, since October so that I'm able to like be a better form of support mm-hmm. for them. Cause it's, it's like, you know, this ain't my first rodeo. I've seen this before now. So yeah. that's kind of, I think where I'm at on that. Um, Carolina, how about you? I mean, yours is different cause your family is all here for the most part. Yeah, well, for me, my father's from the States. My father lives in the States, and my family there lives there. Um, and then my mother's family all lives in Chile. And my mother is actually visiting right now. She's not staying with me, but she's staying with other family in the South. And so my mother, thankfully, she's been taking this very seriously from day one. She calls me three times a day. She asked me, you know, we just chat with, you know, drink coffee together and everything like that. <laughs> and make sure, PSA, call your elders. Yeah. Enough. Call yes. your elders. 
call the older people you know mm-hmm. because they are probably already in a form of isolation that call they're grandma. call yeah call your grandparents call call those people make sure that they know that you're around and that you're there if they need them if you need them um and so yeah for my parents this is something this is definitely a cause for concern as well because my mother has diabetes mm-hmm. my both my parents are in their 60s and so of course i'm a little anxious that my mom's going to get sick or that my you know great aunts are going to get sick or that my father is going to get sick um but i try to just do what I can at the moment and know that I can't control the fact that I can't be with them, know that I can't control if they do get sick or not, but I can be there in the source of support and they can be there for me as well as one. Um, for my friends here and in the States, you know, we are doing our part. Um, but I do really feel for the people who are struggling with, you know, maybe depression or anxiety, and this is heightening that, or people who have, um, you know, who live by themselves and are kind of doing this really on their own. Yeah. I can imagine that's very difficult. Um, and so I I want to be there as a source of support too, because I don't know, I consider myself to be very strong as a person, you are mentally and emotionally. Mm-hmm. Thanks. But I do <laughs> I do feel like in this moment, the best that I can do is to show that I'm going to be around if people need me and that I can be as a, a source of support for people uh, and that they can be one for me. And so that's really all that we can do for each other in the moment and advocate for ourselves. You know, if you are working from home, donate some of your, your money to your friends, um, your friends like Fun Relief, your um, different organizations that are doing really good work. Mm-hmm. Um, Spread the word on your platform. Like, I mean, if you don't have, for example, if you don't have the means to donate, um, or if you literally just, they just don't work down here because international law, um, just spread, you know, post the links on your stories, you know, um, check in. I mean, one thing that we've been doing down here, um, like that me and I've been doing, We'll just like call each other, you know, look at around lunchtime, just like have like little FaceTime lunch dates or just, you know, yell at the sky about the absurdity of everything we're living, you know, <laughs> and whatnot. So it, there's definitely, there's a really great word in Spanish called contención, mm-hmm. which is basically like, there's not really clean translation, but it's basically like to support, um, give love to be like a shoulder for someone to lean on. And that, I think that word, contención, is so so important right now you know whether you're in chile or in the states or anywhere around the world i think that that is going to be one of the best tools that we have to support one another yeah. in all of this right yeah and <clears throat> i it, we're just out about at that time but i i want to say like you guys have said it beautifully yourselves <laughs> like I, I i think like it's the reason why I reached out to, you know, Caitlin at the time was because, like, I was like, this is important that, like, as Americans, people take off their, you know, very uh, self-centered hats and 
<laughs> think about what's going on abroad, you know, and, you know, I have friends all over the place and, you know, I, I just, I see the level of like struggle almost, right? Like there's just so much going on that I think it's, it's important that we, you know, tap into people's humanity. And, you know, I, I, I value your vulnerability throughout this and like sharing your experiences. Like, not many people can say in their lifetime that they have been through multiple revolutions, dealt with, you know, military force, and now deal with a pandemic. You know, like, it, it, it's, you know, ad, like, admirable, and, you know, I applaud y'all. Like, y'all some badass ladies. Like... <laughs> Yeah. Um, Hollywood, so, where's our movie deal? Exactly. <laughs> Come on, Steven Sondheimer, let's get it. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I do want to leave the listeners to, to find a way to find you in, in a positive way. Uh, <laughs> so if you would like to share your socials, you can, or where people can reach out to you for support or ask questions. Um, that's entirely up to you if you want to share course. those. Well, I basically live on the internet. I'm always well done. <laughs> I'm always well done. You can always find me. Um, <laughs> true. Um, so I actually have an Instagram devoted to film photography. And during the movement, I started to document a lot more of um, what I was seeing outside of my door um, in terms of protests and working on documentation, documentation, documenting the English, right? Documenting, <laughs> documenting more of the movement so that it can be shared beyond just Chile because I, I know that in Chile specifically anything that's made here kind of stays here. Yeah. Um, and so I've been very active. I have a lot of opinions and a lot of faith. <laughs> you could say I have a lot of faith. And so you can anyway, you can reach me on Instagram. That's my little thing. <laughs> what's um, your handle? Though? Yeah, what's your handle? Trademark. Trademark. Underscore Scorpio. Because yes, I am a Scorpio as well. Oh my god, you're a Scorpio? I have no idea. <laughs> Trademark underscore Scorpio. You can find me there. You can find me ranting about every single thing that I can find. Love it. And, and you, um, Caitlin? In my case, I tend to be keep things under lock and key. I mean, like, my Instagram is on private, but um, one thing that folks have been telling me since everything kind of started in October is that I have a good eye in terms of, like, kind of spreading awareness of what's going on. So usually in my stories, you can find me yep. screaming into the void about everything that's happening here, usually in the face oh, yeah. of Spanish and English. Um, so, oh, you know what? Let's go for it. Um, as long as you're oh, not creepy, sure. Um, my handle is Kate, C-A-I-T dot M-C-M. Kate dot M-C-M. Um, and yeah, just prepare for like a lot of stupid puns and me ranting about things that either piss me off or make me happy because I just, as Carolina does, I have a lot of opinions. And at this point, who else am I going to say them to? My stuffed animals? No. <laughs> I just shout, shout it on the internet. Your little, your little echo chamber. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no echo chambers, please. That's what got us into no. this. <laughs> no, no, no more echo chambers. No more echo chambers. That's for next week's episode. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> People who don't want to be tuned in to subjects like this and content like this are the ones that hate it the most. True. This is true. 
All right, y'all. Stay tuned for next week uh, for another episode. All right. Bye-bye.